1: Well, if it isn't the star Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to
2: Neverland! I know what you're thinking. You're expecting me to say something about Pixies and Pockets and all that. Well, I'm going to end up saying that a little bit later because this is a very special episode this week. This episode was recorded live from Planet Comic Con, Kansas City, Missouri, 2019. This of course I've been talking about for weeks. This was coming up. Uh, Lost Boy Eric was unable to fly in so Lost Boy Philip and I did this panel and we talked about all of the artists that work with Walt Disney at laugh gram Studios and what became of them. And you can kind of see that Walt Disney's influence may have had an effect on all of the animation that really kind of Came out in that era. So it's a very fascinating panel. People really seem to have enjoyed it. I got to meet a couple of new people who uh, who really liked it. Uh, there's one lady that's dressed as She Hello, I'm pretty sure she's listening. I think she said her name was Tara. I'm trying to remember. She actually helped me find a uh, Mickey Mouse Funko Pop of The Brave Little Taylor. Uh, I actually, at this convention, I found a lot of the Mickey Mouse Funko Pops. They're really adorable. I've got a playing crazy one now and also one from the band concert. So I am very happy with the ones I have, adding that to my but Willy one uh, I had a great time at this convention Paige O'Hara was there at the convention the voice of Belle from Beauty and the Beast I couldn't find her when it came time I was going to go and have her sign something couldn't find her at her booth. She wasn't there. But I did manage to get a comic book signed by Spider-Man artist. Well, he's, he's been an artist for a lot of stuff in Marvel. But I've always liked his work on Spider-Man. But Mark Bagley was there. And so I had him sign and personalize uh, a comic. Uh, it was a free comic book day version of Ultimate Spider-Man number one. And I, the, even the very first Spider-Man comic I bought with my own money was something that he had drawn that issue. And I remember it's, it's a Shocker issue. And he drew Shocker on the cover fighting Spider-Man. Spider-Man, and so that was pretty exciting for me to have that signed. I got to go to quite a few panels... Got a few photos of some cosplayers. It's all going to be up on the website, NeverlandPodcast.com. All the photos of Mick Foley and Wallace Shawn and some of the panels I went to. Of course, that's audio I'm going to share with you when I get a chance to because it's good stuff. Uh, There might even be some things I release a little early to my Patreon supporters. In fact, I have video of the panel and I plan on releasing that one a little early uh, to the Patreon support. So you all get to look at a uh, video of the panel when you also get to hear you know, the audio in this week's episode. But I have the, the video up there for you. Uh, I may even copy the notes over for uh, so a special thing for some Patreon supports. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Because I'm keeping the notes. And I did, we uh, signed a couple copies of our notes and gave them to a couple of uh, uh, people who attended the panel. And everybody seemed to have enjoyed the panel, so it's great audio. Uh, so I'm going to share that with you right now. But after the panel audio is over, don't go anywhere because we also happen to have had a new Disney release this week Dumbo the live action remake and I will have my review for you at the end of the show I would have maybe done it before the panel audio but because I kind of mentioned it at the end of the panel and I talk about it a little bit I thought it would be good to just go ahead and do the review and talk about it at the uh, towards the end of the show after the panel audio so without too much more talking from me Uh, I want to thank everybody who came to the panel. If you happen to be now listening to this episode because you came and enjoyed the panel, thank you for attending. I always love doing it. I love it when people do show up and enjoy and have a good time. Uh, And I did hear it circulated a little bit. Somebody else even coming to me later says, Oh, wow, I'm really hearing the good things about your panel. People really enjoyed that. So uh, I really appreciate that. Even over at the Thank You Walt Disney booth, I think is where somebody was telling me, they're like, Yo, I heard about your panel, and I hear people really liked it. So... I, I really appreciate that. Uh so anyways, here is the audio of said panel. And of course, like I said, stick around for a dumbo review. Don't forget.
1: To Disney and beyond. Oh. Start him up! Okay, who's the leader of the club? Who's made for you and me? Say it again.
3: Oh okay. great.
1: What was that? Watch your mouth. By the way, yeah, that's That's wonderful. I like I like all your shirts. I see I see uh, Superman out here. Yeah, I'm fanatical about that. I love it. I see Wolverine out here, bub, as you said earlier. Oh yeah, I see Spawn. I see a whole lot of stuff I like. That's wonderful. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's wonderful. Of course, he's a Superman fan. Uh, his last boy nickname is Kryptonian. You can't tell, but I'm wearing Superman right now,
2: just underneath some things. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And just to kind of get everybody informed while we're still waiting, i got three minutes before I actually start anything with the really good stuff, because people are still wandering in. But uh, basically, I started the Neverland podcast six years ago. I've now updated towards Neverland to Disney and beyond, because we frequently go outside Disney a little bit, because I figure if you're listening in and you like animation, you might have like How to Train Your Dragon. So I want to be able to talk about that as well. People like Marvel movies, you probably have liked some DC movies. I mean, they, they can't all be, uh, you know, Batman v Superman and be that wonderful. <laughs> but, I <laughs> was awesome. And I'm excited yes. for Shazam and I wanted to be able to talk about it on the show so I give myself that little bit of leeway. Although, I do notice, like, sometimes my download numbers, I see a drop when I talk about something and I, I put the title and it's non-Disney. They instantly assume I don't want to hear anybody to talk about Disney because there are people who are so obsessed that they don't like anything else. I'm like, well that's fine, but I still think good show for you. And I'm still gonna talk some Disney in there. So but anyways how I was referring to him as the Kryptonian. Every Lost Boy or Pixie, girls are too clever, they don't get lost. That's from the book. So all you ladies can become Pixies, all you guys can become lost boys, but you have to have a nickname. So your nickname has to describe you. We call him Kryptonian because he is such a Superman junkie. And I'm the head lost boy, which makes me the pan. I got pan sore. I'm the pan now. Thank you, Rufio. <laughs> I'm a big Spider-Man junkie, so I'm the Spider-Pan. See? So you get something clever. If you go to our website, NeverlandPodcast.com, you click on the thing in the middle of Neverlanders, you can actually send a little email and why you want to be nicknamed what you want to be nicknamed. And we get you on the list and we add to our army of Neverlanders out there, or Pixies and Lost Boys, and we have a good time. But of course the theme of our show is uh, spreading pixie dust, which is that young at heart, positive attitude. And you gotta keep that. And then you keep your pixie in your pocket. That's another thing we say. We keep your pixie in your pocket. That way whenever you need somebody, you see someone needs a little pixie dust, you pull your pixie out and say, here, shake it out out there. <laughs> so that's how that works. So and basically how that translates in real life is you know, you see somebody having a bad day. Just sometimes, like, hey, how you doing? Smile at them,
1: Grace but guys be sincere. Clear up. Be right. sincere. Yeah, great skies. It can't rain all the time. That's right. Put
2: on a happy face. Yeah. Are we already rolling back there? Because it's about ten thirty. We're rolling. Yeah, we are rolling now. Awesome. <laughs> So I'm gonna start this way, I started. what? That's a good stuff, so Yeah. Well good. I'm glad it's good stuff. I haven't even gotten started. We're not even technically good stuff. But I start every show like this. Take your pixie out of your pocket, spread a little bit of that pixie dust, think of that happiest thought, and let's fly away to Neverland. I of course will be your guide. who am I the head lost boy? Let's fight her pan, because somebody has to be in the pan till Peter comes back. I don't know what happened to the guy. I think he became a lawyer. <laughs> I heard he might even be dead. I'll have to ask Blaine Weaver. I'm, I'm one of these days we're gonna have Blaine Weaver on. If you don't know who that is, he's the current voice, like in the Parks. He also did Return to Neverland, which I fell asleep trying to watch when I borrowed that for now. That's a good show. It's a little embarrassing. The guy who has a show called Neverland that I fall asleep during one of the movies. No, it's a good one. It's pretty. It's not as good as the original. Well, you can't uh, beat that. Yeah. But anyway, so that's how I start out every show. But. I, I did a lot of research. This is my fourth year out here. Uh, first year, we had a couple of people from Marceline come down from the Walt Disney Hometown Museum. Uh, lots of fun. We went over pretty much everything Walt has done, other than, of course, living there. And every time he comes back to Marceline, he's brought stuff. I had a great time talking about some early history of Walt. Uh, then the following year, my co-host Eric was here. Unfortunately, he couldn't be here this year. He couldn't get a flight. We talked about the Laughing Studios and. That went on to do amazing things. We were almost the hub of animation here in Kansas City if the Laugh-A-Gram studio had not had failed. But if we didn't have if, if hadn't failed, we wouldn't have had the Disney company. We'd have Laugh-A-Gram, probably. probably. But Roy would yeah. not have been involved and also wouldn't probably have any good business That's to be able to keep his company going. So so if you have never seen where Laugh-A-Gram is at, here on 31st Street, you head towards Troost. It's like a block away from Troost. You'll see a building that has a big sign that says, thank you, Walt Disney, has... Your pixie's talking. <laughs> Why are my in-laws calling? We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Hi! Hello? Yeah, that's me. Hi, you're talking to an entire crowd I'm looking at. You're what? We're out here at Planet Comic Con. We're going to talk to some Walt Disney artists, and I forgot to turn my phone off. Oh, okay. Well, if you'd rather
3: call me back later, then. Hurry.
2: Okay, but say hi to everybody. Everybody, say say hi, Mrs. Hi. Billings. Hi. <laughs>
3: okay. Have a good time.
2: Give <laughs> me
3: a call
2: when you can. Okay. Bye. 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 See, I actually like my mother-in-law because she's cool. <laughs> My bad, okay. I'm totally leaving that in 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 my recording of the show. Yeah, I even told you. (laughs) Yeah, I was even talking to you earlier, so yeah, make sure you turn it off. Okay, what was that? Oh, yeah, so you'll see a building. It has, uh, let's say, thank you, Walt Disney, and it has um, like drawings from something, because what are the United Features that's actually here in Kansas City? So there's a lot of their artists have come in, so Ziggy's drawn on there, and I think like Beetle Bailey, but that's the actual building, and they're trying to actually get it rebuilt for Laughlin' Studios. If you keep going down 31st Street and go down Bellefontaine, now it's a one-way come the opposite direction, but there's this brown house kind of near the corner, and that's where the Disney family lived. It's ringing. Oh, sorry. I'm going to trust. Uh, that's where the Disney family lived after they moved here when Walt's about nine years old from Marceline. So but then we got to advance in history, and some of these other people that Walt met, that uh, these are some pioneers of animation. Some of these names you're going to know. Some of these names you're going to be like, I don't know who that is, but when we start talking about what they've done, you're going to be
3: like, oh, oh my God.
2: So, but well, let's we'll start with Hugh Harmon. I'm gonna see if people feel like, I'm gonna look at faces. Because if I say names, somebody goes like, oh, I'm gonna be like, those are my people. So, but Hugh Harmon was born August 31st, 1903, in Pagosa Springs, California. Or not California, Colorado. Sorry, I'm already messing my words up. So he actually tried to start his own studio after Lapagram failed with Carmen Maxwell and Rudolf Ising. Now we're gonna hear those names later on. You're also going to find out why they failed. There was a project they were trying to do, we'll talk about later. So when that fails, he did hear back from Walt, and we're going to get some details on what Walt starts doing in California. But he hears from Walt, and he's going to start working with somebody named Charles Miss and Margaret Winkler. So Walt sends out notifications. So Hugh Harmon is one of the people who went back to work in California and starts working on... The Alice comedies, and also Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Which, if some of you are not familiar with him, we we're going to get you. Oh, she knows Oswald? That's awesome. Woo-hoo! So he continued to actually produce uh, Oswald cartoons with Rudolph Ising, which actually developed their particular style, which they would both of them would later carry on over at Warner Brothers. Uh, and one year later, though, oh, actually, uh, yeah, he, still, he kept working under Charles Mintz, and actually Charles Mintz kept him on after he took Oswald away from Walt. This is when he starts really developing that style. And about a year later that he's working with Charles Mintz, he got replaced by Walter or yeah, Walter Lance. Anybody know the name Walter Lance? For Woody Woodpecker fans out there. Now, Walter Lance never worked with Walt, but I have seen some quotes from him where he does credit a lot of his style to Walt Disney. Uh, so with Isaac, Rudolph Ising, and a few other former Disney animators, and with producer Leon Schlesinger, you're going to know his name very well later, uh, created a pilot for Bosco the Talking Kid. Uh, Go Bosco!
3: Yeah, Bosco was
2: one of those very early, very round-headed little monkey characters that uh, was for a while. He was the very first of the Looney Tunes, but later they took that character over to MGM. Uh, We'll we'll bring up some of that later, so I won't get into it too far. Uh, But Hugh Harmon in 1939 was working for MGM... Uh, He took Bosco with him in 1934 over to Bosco because he was previously under contract with Warner Brothers. But he got nominated for an Oscar in an anti-war cartoon called Peace on Earth. So here you are. You're at the cusp of World War II starting, and he's trying to put a thing out for peace because we really were trying to have peace here in the United States, so then Japan ruined that for us. Uh, (laughs) the, the, The cartoon actually featured two squirrels commenting on the evils of humanity. Which was probably, I, I would like to see this. I wonder if he was commenting on some of the evils he was seeing going on in Europe, because things were starting to heat up over there in 1939. So, 1940, here we go. I was actually just watching a video on YouTube, I need to show you about Hanna Barbera. But, 1940, he was the producer on Hanna Barbera's first cartoon, Puss Gets the Boots. Anyone want to take a guess who this introduced the worlds to? Two big characters. Yes, Tom and Jerry. Puss gets the boots, the very first Tom and Jerry cartoon. This actually launches the career of Hanna-Barbera. So you have Hugh Harmon, who develops an animation style, working with Walt. Later on, starts working with these Hanna-Barbera guys and gets their career launched. So perhaps without Walt Disney's influence, maybe we wouldn't even have Hanna-Barbera. Speculation, but you can see there it's it's all connected. It's very interesting. Uh, in 1941, Hugh Hartman left MGM and he joined actually with Disney veteran Mel Shaw and formed their own studio in Ub Iwerks' old studio, created in military training cartoons, which happened a lot in the 40s. You know, Walt's his entire studio turned into a you know military propaganda thing. They just they turned his entire studio into an army base, pretty much. Uh, we'll get into a lot more details on Ub Iwerks' studio uh, later on when we talk about Ub. So, Rudolph Ising. Yes, Rudolph Ising,
1: after Lafogram, uh, after it failed the studio creation attempt, went to Hannah uh, Harmon back to work with Disney on Oswald cartoons and the Alice comedies. They continued working with Mintz after Oswald taken a was taken away from Walt. And after leaving Universal Studios with Mintz, he and Harmon went to Warner Brothers and began to work with On Bosco, which launched the Looney Tunes series. Now, I think you might have heard of Looney Tunes. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Anyone here ever heard of Looney Tunes? Yeah, I think so. Me too. Just a few. I don't know. I might be wrong about that. They also started Merry Melodies, which of course is a part of the Looney Tunes, we know right. that. Merry Melodies in, in parody, we believe, of Walt's Silly Symphonies. Or that might just be uh, util- utilizing the popularity of them.
2: Yeah, some websites that I was scanning with my research said that it called the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies was definitely a parody of Silly Symphonies because Walt Disney already developed a name for himself. But Jim Corcus, if anybody knows that guy, I mean, he is a walking, I've had him on the show, he's so awesome. I sent him my notes for any corrections, and he says, well, we're We don't know that really it was parody. It was probably just utilizing the fact that everybody heard of Silly Symphony, so they figured if they did a similar name, they might gain some of that popularity and pull something away from Walt. Yeah, we see that a lot even now, those types of things. They are frequent
1: uh, acu- accused of copying Disney style. This parody title may have something to do with it. Yeah, when it, you kind of line yourself too close to Walt, everybody's going to be like
2: you are trying to be Walt Disney, aren't you?
1: That's right. They worked on *Silly Symphony* uh, Mer Thank yeah, you. That's a hard word. Yes, it is. But, While Walt's animators uh, working on were working on *Snow White*, you may have heard that movie too. I don't know. It, yeah. it didn't do too well, kind of, I don't think. Kind of, okay. <laughs> Uh, 1931 Mary Melody's Smile Darn You Smile I wonder if anybody from that, does that clicking and emails anybody? Yes, yeah, that's right. The theme song. We got a guy back. back here. He knows it. Yeah, the theme song of this short was used in Who
2: Framed Roger Rabbit? Do you all remember that movie, Who Framed Roger mm-hmm. Rabbit? One of my you might. I have a hard time in the movie actually hearing the lyrics, but Disney Indiana, the podcast I like to listen to, plays a version of it. Everybody apparently really loved this song, and so many people re-recorded Smile, Darn You Smile from this cartoon. But well, this is some smile, darn ya, yeah, smile You know this whole world is a great world after all Take it, bud If nobody else sings with me, I'm gonna stop but Smile it's- Rabbit, when all the cartoons bust through the wall and they're all singing it, I could never understand a lyric to
1: it, though. Yeah, I mean, well, there's so much going on. So much going on. But
2: that's what they're singing. And it, it is a great little song. I like it.
1: It is. But I, I leave it up to the, the the singing sword, Frank Sinatra. You know what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Sinatra, baby. But that being said, that's a great song, Smile, Darn you, Smile. It's drawn by uh, I. Freeling and Max uh, Maxwell, which is hard for me to say. Yeah, Max, Max Maxwell. Maxwell. Well, he's Max Maxwell is his full name, but he went by Max. So we're going to talk about him later, too. Yes, that's right. Who? Uh, Uh, We'll meet later, as you just said. In 1933, after uh, falling out with Leon Schlesinger uh, at Warner Brothers, that's hard for me to say, too, took Bosco to MGM uh, since he and Harmon held the copyright.
2: Now, he probably learned that trick from Walt. Because Walt, when he created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, he did it under contract from Charles Mintz. So Charles Mintz actually had legal rights to take that character away. And leave Walt with nothing. But thank you, because without that, we wouldn't have Mickey Mouse. So, neener. Uh, but <laughs> I figured, you know, Harmon and Ising had to have seen what happened said, okay, we're going to create this character, Bosco, but we make sure we keep the rights. So when they leave Warner Brothers, they're taking that character with them. So, no, that's ours. We created them. We own the copyright. Warner Brothers, screw you guys. We'll, we'll be back later, though. They went over to MGM with Bosco. So I figured they had to have known that happened to Walt. I'm like, aha. Uh-huh.
1: And then created 37 happy harmonies. And that does sound a lot like the silly symphony, yeah, they, they put a lot of them under the label harmonizing, which I thought was cute because they're harmonizing. So. It is. So they created 37 happy harmonies. In 1938, they, terminate, they were terminated from uh, MGM. Uh, and the, there was a subcontracted for one year. They also
2: began some work with Disney on Silly Symphonies. That's when they did that, Mur Babies, when they started subcontractor. Because they had their own company, Harmonizing, so they're not working in MGM, but they can subcontract. They still did a little bit of stuff for MGM, and they did some work on Silly Symphonies like the Murr Babies, because all the all of Walt's Animators were busy with Snow White. So. They then hired back at MGM after that year,
1: after Disney, and they reneged on the deal to release two Harmon-Eizing uh, cartoons, which were later sold to Fred Quimby.
2: Fred Quimby is a name you might be familiar with. Oh, yeah, uh, I mean, he's at the tail end of a lot. Of, I think he was with MGM, because um, I know he was associated with, uh, he did some stuff with Hanna-Barbera. I still looked up some stuff on him, but he's not from Kansas City. So. <laughs> Isaac and Harmon then separated, from what
1: I understand. Yep. 1940 they won an Oscar for the Milky Way I don't know if anyone's ever
2: seen that anyone ever seen the Milky Way cartoon yeah this would be specifically Rudolph Ising though that he won his Oscar in 1940 for that yeah great great cartoon I've seen it's a very good one this first one Disney didn't win
1: yeah that's can you imagine that after all those years that Disney won uh, Oscar after Oscar after Oscar then suddenly here comes oh
2: hey that guy used to work with me and he took my Oscar
1: (laughs) And then 19... I'm sure he was happy for it. Oh, I'm sure he was, yeah. but not happy for himself. In 1942, he left MGM to serve in the military uh, during World War II, and you have to commend him for that, to yeah. serve in the military in World War II. In 1951, Harmon and Ising produced
2: good wrinkles to support California prune industry. And we, we, we speculate that might have had some influence on the California raises later. We just thought that was interesting. Look, a prune cartoon! Maybe that's where you're going to do something with Raisins. They heard it through the prune vine. They might have. <laughs> now, uh, one thing we do want to kind of mention uh, is, uh, I forgot to bring this up after I was going through Hugh Harmon, but Hugh Harmon had a brother, Fred Harman, who did a little bit of work with Laugh Gram, but he didn't go on into animation. He instead started drawing his own comic strip by the name of Red Rider. Anyone ever heard Red Rider? He
1: had a very famous BB gun. Uh-huh. Maybe you've ever watched The Christmas Story. He also had a very famous, at the time, candy bar known as the Action Bar. And I don't know if you've ever heard that. There was also a, a, a loaf of bread that you could get that looked like it was coming in a wagon like you have back in the West. Now, I, I personally know all this simply because I collect different things from Red Rider, different signs and things like that. I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. I mean, yeah. I think it shows. And so are we all, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, so we're all we're here. here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that being said. That being said. All right. Now, <laughs> Carl
1: Stalling, my friend.
2: Carl Stalling. Now, some of you have probably watched cartoons and seen his name, but maybe you didn't realize you saw his name. So, the weird thing, if you go down 34th Street, like I was talking about earlier, and you go around Trust, you're going to see this kind of a weird thing drawn on the side. You'll see a picture of Walt Disney, a really bad, badly drawn Mickey Mouse head, and a thing that says ISIS Theater. Now, the ISIS Theater was a silent movie house. Carl Stalling played music at that silent movie house, and that's where the laughograms were shown, is over there. But so we'll get into some of those details, because Carl Stalling, when I get into what he did later, you're going to be like, oh. I, I expect to hear a collective, oh, to where like, my, my, my ears are just going to pop, so I expect <laughs> that. It's, believe it, This is awesome. Okay, but he's born Lexington, Missouri in 1888. And actually, at a very young age, he started playing with a broken piano toy and actually developed his love of composing music, playing with a broken piano toy. That's Prodigy. Saw the Great Train Robbery at age five and fell in love with the cinema. Now, that's one of the most famous silent films other than the uh, the one that's uh, – Cuckoo, Ku Klux Klan. I call them the Cuckoo Clan, uh, but that works. Uh, but they had made a very famous silent film. But The Great Trade Robbery is one of the first ones that actually had story as a big thing in silent film. So now he meets Walt, of course, because he's the, the uh, organist over at the Isis Theater. So a Laughter cartoon's cartoon is coming in there that Walt makes, and Carl's going to come up with some music, and he's going to play music for it. Uh, now, Laprogram, of course, as we've gone through it, every one of these artists, closes down. So, what happens to Carl Stalling? Well, he goes ahead, and he goes to work with Walter Roy and starts composing music for the first Silly Symphony. You, anybody know what the first Silly Symphony was? Yes, I heard it back right there, Skeleton Dance. So Carl Stalling wrote that song, and I love that music. Uh, so yes, Skeleton Dance is part of a pair of shorts that he had an agreement that he was going to score. And even once, I, I found it noted online that he did do a voice for Mickey at some point. I don't know what cartoon it was, but somebody said that he did dub Mickey one time. And it's probably where Mickey had like one line, which just for fun, anybody know what the first word Mickey Mouse actually ever said was? Hot dog. He was a hot dog vendor. I can't remember what cartoon it is. Because if you look at Steamboat Willie, he doesn't actually say anything. It's more playing music. So anyways, but Carl Stalling develops a technique that they call ticking. And what he does is everybody in the orchestra has headphones on, and they hear a metronome tick. So it keeps them all together. So if they can't see that baton, they don't have an excuse. They have a tick in their ears. So in 1930, he goes to work with Ub Iwerks on Flip the Frog. That's something Ub Works started doing on his own. 1936, this is where it's going to get interesting, as if it wasn't already. He goes to work for Warner Brothers and becomes the Animation Department's Musical Director for over 20 years at Warner Brothers. Carl Stalling wrote that song that we all love to hear, and I'm not going to sing anymore. Thank you. Carl Stalling. <laughs> Although one of <laughs> them, Merry Melodies, was actually based on Merry We Roll Along, but the Looney Tunes theme was completely original. Uh, and I just lifted some stuff from AllMusic.com because they have a nice thing, so I'm going to try to read this as interesting as I can. So from allmusic.com, Stalling's arrival coincided with an emergence of a golden age of Warner animation under the supervision of producer Leon Schlesinger, which we've mentioned him a lot of times already, who assembled a crack team of animators including Robert McKimson, Bob Clampett, Chuck Jones – I know y'all know Chuck Jones. Oh, yeah. Tex Avery. Come on, where's my cartoon people? And Frank Tashlin. I have no idea that guy though. <laughs> the studio's cartoons, the Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes series, respectively, heralded a new era of inspired lunacy with a stable of memorable characters like Daffy Duck, Daff, Porky Pig, as well as a brand of anarchic comedy far removed from Disney's gentility. And with the 1937 arrival of voiceover master Mel Blanc. The nucleus of the studio's team was complete, and with the 1940 introduction of the character, who later evolved into Bugs Bunny, the Warner Brothers flagship icon was born. So, Warner's, Stalin scored some 600 cartoons in all. In addition to creating their distinctive opening sound effect, you know, they, they listed it on there, they call it boing, but we know that sound, you know. Yeah, so he achieved via an electric guitar chord. He also established their distinctive theme song using Merrily We Roll Along for the Merry Melodies series and the Merry Go Round Broke Down for Looney Tunes. Which, I, it's hard to remember like the difference between the two songs off the top of my head, but yeah. Dun, dun, I'm not humming dun, dun, that dun, dun, one either. Dun, 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 yeah. But that's Merrily yeah, We you're Roll Along. sound very similar. It's hard to distinguish, but there is a difference between Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. Anyway, so working with Warner's 50 piece orchestra under the direction of director Milt Franklin, Stalling scored each cartoon in about three hours at a staggering rate of at least one a week. Absorbing the influences of current pop hits, classical symphonies, and the like, and then quoting whatever seemed fit over time, motifs began developing in his work. Drunken characters commonly stumbled about to the strains of How Dry I Am. Bugs Bunny's frequent appearances in drag were held by The Lady in Red, and Bouts of Hunger were accompanied by the obscure Billy Rose number A Cup of Coffee, A Sandwich, and You. So he took popular songs and actually made, you know, we didn't grow up with some of these old songs, but we would know if we hear. And I always think it's called like the machine. But when you hear da, 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 whatever the other machine going on, that was a popular song at the time. And he just said, well, "Well, use that. That's a Warner Brothers song." So he made a lot of songs popular. He even took classical songs, as I mentioned. And so we've heard a lot of classical music that we didn't realize was classical because we were watching Looney Tunes. There's actually a great YouTube channel. This German guy that when he starts playing a song, he'll... Cause he doesn't really speak good English, but he'll play a song, and he's got some videos that he labels classic songs that you know, but you didn't know the, the name of, and he'll play a lot of these songs, some of them you probably heard in Looney Tunes, and he'll put what the name of it is on, like, oh my gosh, I knew Beethoven, I didn't know I knew Beethoven, but thank you, Bugs Bunny, you taught me Beethoven.
1: I listen to a lot of classical music whenever I'm tired or whatever, I love classical music, but the funny thing is, is I'm trying to read what it is, you know, um, whatever it could be. Beethoven, Mozart, a key of this or this. I don't know that name. A lot of times, like Daffy Duck running from so-and-so is what I call it. <laughs> this is just the way it is. Yeah, because you hear that bit and like, wait a minute. That's just, that's just it for me. So,
2: Isidore Frizz Freeling.
1: Oh, okay. Some of you probably Isandor Frizz Freeling. August the twenty first, nineteen o six, in Kansas City, Missouri, was born old. in Kansas City. That's exactly right. one of our own. One this of our guys, one of the greatest. Of yes, met Walt Disney in United Film at Service. How they do this through U B. I works. We know of. We love Up. Yeah, we're going to learn going about him later. New. And through Hugh Harmon, who introduced Walt as the Laugh-O-Gram was ending. And unfortunately, Laugh-O-Gram didn't make it. We talked about that one. Yeah, ago. it only lasted about
2: a year, year and a half. Exactly. It <laughs> so, didn't last very long.
1: But we still love what the Laugh-O-Gram did. So and after Laugh-O-Gram, they followed Walt Disney uh, to Los Angeles in 1923. In fact, it was about seven months later.
2: Yeah, Friz Freeling kind of held back a little bit. And I, I, I kinda of think what might have been part of the reason is you know, he didn't get a chance early to really work too much in, in Laugh-A-Ground, But he, he had already met up by works in Hugh Harmon and Walt suddenly crashes his business. Now, suddenly Walt gets this contract in California. He's going to do this Alice Comedies. He sends word out to Hugh Harman and i Iwerks. Oh, hey, come join me on this. They go find Fritz Freely and say, hey, Walt Disney, he's got himself a contract. He's got a new company, and we're going to make Alice Comedies. Fritz Freeling's like, wait a minute. Didn't that guy just bankrupt a company? That's right. I kind of like getting paid when I work. And didn't he, like, not pay you guys because he didn't have the enough money to pay you? So I bet that's what he was thinking while there was a seven-month delay after they went that he finally decided, all right, I'm coming. Because that's a big move from Kansas City to California so I a feeling he was like okay I'll do it
1: so after going to, to California and working on the Alice Comedies and Oswald the Lucky Rabbit then everything was taken uh, by Margaret Winkler and Charles Mintz mainly Charles Mintz mainly Charles Mintz and they went to New York and unfortunately unfortunately uh, Frizz went with them and so that happened and didn't believe that Harmon and uh, Ising series would be very successful and so, after he went there, he worked on Crazy Cat. And I don't know if any of you ever heard of Crazy Cat. I've seen bits and pieces of it. Pretty much, a, let's just be honest, a copy off of Felix.
2: Yeah, I figured they were, they were doomed from the start because you're trying to make another cat character when Felix is popular. Yeah, it didn't, didn't work out very well. Not a good idea. You all know who Felix is, all right? Yeah, Felix the cat. The yeah. wonderful, wonderful cat.
1: We love that cat. And oh, then, yeah. he then moved back to California when Harmon and Ising sold to Warner Brothers. He then joined on to Warner Brothers in 1930 and became full time director in 1933. Walt would see uh, I. Freeling and credited uh, on cartoons, and he would call him, what did he call him again? I. P.
2: Freeling. Walt and Fritz Freeling didn't quite get along. And- probably had something to do with, uh, Walt was big on loyalty. Yes, he was. So when his artists get wooed away by Charles Mintz and ditched him to go work Oswald because Oswald was still going to be getting produced over there with Charles Mintz and Universal, Walt didn't take it very kindly. He so It was a slap in the face. In the it way. was a, yeah, a heck of a slap in the face. So when Walt would see he'd go to a movie and he'd see a Looney Tune in there and see directed, directed and, direct it and you'll, you'll see these lines. He'll say, IP or I Freeling. Walt would always apparently say to somebody, okay, IP freely directed this one. So that being said, when it's he... humor, man. That's, that's Walt. He never grew up. <laughs> when he was
1: to Warner Brothers, though, he then created or at least redesigned a few characters like Bugs Bunny,
2: Porky Pig... Yosemite Sam, which I had my note in the wrong spot. Yosemite Sam was actually kind of inspired by the look of Frizz Freeling because Frizz Freeling was noted as being short, red-haired, and having a bad temper. So when you see Yosemite Sam from now on, you Fritz
1: will Fritz. know <laughs> it is actually Fritz Freeling. Yeah. So think about that next time you see him go, Oh, you're right. the
2: 54th five-fourth.
1: You'll say, it's IP Freeling. yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: That's it. Well, you would wet yourself one up many times falling off the cliff because Bugs Bunny tricked you in that thing again until you learned to control your temper. Well, that's probably true. I don't get more. I ain't got the heart to tell him the money's gone.
1: That's right. I love that cartoon. And so he also he also recreated or redesigned or at least created characters like Sylvester you all know Sylvester the cat mm-hmm. and then also uh, Tweety Pie now wait notice we said Tweety Pie right. not Tweety Bird. There's a reason that was his original name. Yep. And he was originally pink because he was supposed to be a featherless little hatchling. But that looked kind of disgusting so yeah. they originally they did uh, change it, it. It looked good. I've seen that one. Yeah it it's, it's weird when is. you see the little pink bird you're like why is he pink? And then they change it to yellow. They change he's Tweety it to Bird. It. Bird. Yeah. yeah, they change it to Tweety Bird. And he's an
2: annoying I, I, don't, I, don't, I never liked Tweety Bird. You don't like Tweety Bird? I don't like Tweety Bird. He's
1: cute. He's cute. We'll have to he's disagree cute. on that one. Yeah. And then they... It's like, like I, uh,
2: Tom and Jerry. I root for Tom.
1: I like Jerry
2: him. usually starts the fight.
1: Yeah, he also ends it. Yeah, he
2: does. <laughs> Jerry's vicious.
1: Yeah, I okay. love him both. He then uh, stopped directing, not Jerry here, we're talking about IP free. Right. stopped directing For his in 1936, and he was joined by Fred Tex Avery. He joined by him in 1937. He won four Oscars at Warner Brothers and moved to MGM to work on Captain and the Kids. He was offered almost double the pay that Leon Schlesinger was paying him at Warner Brothers, a series of shorts based off of a comic strip but it was not successful.
2: Yeah, I never found out what comic strip that was he was doing at MGM, but it just didn't take off, so that's probably why I couldn't find anything. They just probably swept it under the rug, like, oh, we thought Fritz Freelick, he's done all these great Looney Tunes. Let's have him do a new series at MGM. It stinks.
1: (laughs) He then returned to Warner Brothers in 1939 and stayed until Termite Terrace Studio was closed in 1963.
2: Now, I'm thinking Termite Terrace was maybe a playful name that some of the artists had for the Warner Brothers Animation Studio. I couldn't find anything else, it was noted as termite terrace, which sounds like something that maybe was you know poorly constructed, and it was a little nickname. Yeah, probably. All right, because this is a long one. This is where I take it. We're talking about Fritz Freeling. 1963, he co-founded De Pate freeling Enterprises with David H. De Pate. Now, are these names starting to run familiar? Oh, Wolverine knows. Yeah. Uh, they subcontracted go, at Loli. first to produce shorts for Warner Brothers, so they did some more Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies from 1964 to 1967. But then they produced and directed cartoons for television and theater. They animated the opening of The Pink Panther. da <laughs> So Freeling and DePate start making Pink Panther shorts. The first one, the Pink Fink in 1964, won Chris Freeling his fifth Oscar. Then he starts producing shorts until he retires around 1981. Now get this, this is where the plot thickens. So, in 1981, he wants to re- retire. Now, you remember there was Marvel Productions, which was a division from Marvel, because Stan Lee really wanted to start getting animation going. So, Marvel Productions, they started doing stuff. You know, they got uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Uh, also, I think this is where they had a little bit of rights on Hulk Hogan. Which was, I think through Marvel Productions is what they... Well, let me tell you something, brother. You better get it right. Yeah. So, Fritz Reeling sells his assets to Marvel Productions. So, now Marvel Productions is owned by the Walt Disney Company. So there are only a few things Fritz Freeling did on his own that Disney does not currently own. So see how this comes full circle? Now I've got a list. Okay, so from 1964 to 1967, when he was subcontracting contracting for Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers still owns that, those are their characters. The Dr. Seuss television specials made by DePate and Freeling are owned by Warner Brothers. And the copyrights of the Pink Panther show and character are owned by MGM uh, and United Artists. And then I, The fun thing is they did the Dr. Doolittle and Return to the Plane of the Apes, which is owned by 20th Century Fox. So guess who owns that now?
1: Now, is that one cartoon?
2: Uh, that was a couple different cartoons. I was hoping so. I can't imagine Dr. Doolin. Mean, I heard there's a television together. series of the Planet of the Apes. There's actually I uh, seen it. Uh, a podcast called Talking Apes that they're big fans of that series, and they went do, like, the entire thing. Uh, also, though, uh, The Tiny Tree is currently owned by ATT, and t and t is, like, buying up some studios now. I can't remember if they just got an acquisition. What's New, Mr. Magoo is currently owned by DreamWorks Classics, NBC Universal, Comcast, and The Bear Who Slept Through Christmas is currently owned by Lion. But everything else they worked on, I have no idea what that is. I love It's it. currently owned by Disney. I would love it if Disney would have gotten a hold of Pink Panther and brought him back. That'd be great. i love it. Even if you just let Steve Martin be involved. And an animated Steve Martin. Wouldn't that, that have been something? You know, redraw Inspector Clouseau. Or at least let Steve Martin be the voice of Inspector
1: Clouseau and make some new cartoons. I would like to see Pink Panther in the Jungle Book. that <laughs> oh, That's yeah. Cool. You know,
2: they got that sequel coming out. Maybe we just said, hey, hey, go and acquire the rights for the Pink Panther.
1: I'm joking so. with everybody.
2: Oh, I, I, this is a weird fact. Okay, so, Chris Freeling, one of the greatest animators, next to Ub Iwerch, who was the greatest animator of all time? Yeah. Fight me? No, I'm kidding. Uh, you'd probably win. I'm a little guy. But he dies May 26, 1995 in Los Angeles. Now, May 26, 1995 is a very significant date for me. This is how weird my life is. I was born in 77, the exact day after Star Wars was released, just a couple months before Elvis died. So I was a replacement for Elvis. You're welcome. Uh, And then I turned 18 and graduated from high school on May 26, 1995 when Fritz Freeling was dying. So apparently I was ready to move into adulthood and to replace Fritz Freeling. You're welcome. Are you still in adulthood? No. No. (laughs) One rule we have in Neverland is we never actually grow up. So. But, yeah, thank you very much. But, anyways, it is said, though, that he held a grudge against Walt Disney for having been fired at some point. He might have been fired from laugh or something. I, don't, I couldn't figure out exactly when he was fired. This Jim Corkus sent me on an email so that he held his grudge. But, yet, he always did respect Walt Disney's work. So, see, it's impossible to not get along but have respect for each other. A lesson for your Facebook page. <laughs> okay, the next one. The fun have. name for you to say.
1: <laughs> the next one is CarMax max Maxwell. I have a hard time with it. I really do.
2: Car-Max, Max, Maxwell. I bet that's why they called him Max. Because when you named car Who are cruel parents they are? Your last name is Maxwell, and you named your kid Car-Max.
1: It sounds like a ma- Marvel character, doesn't it? It sounds like something Stanley you would come up with. with Car-Max, Maxwell. So they just called him Max. Car-Max, Max, Maxwell. Was born December the 27th, 1902 in Salome
2: Springs, Arkansas. Is oh, that Arkansas.
1: right? Arkansas. Yeah. Okay.
2: We had to remember which one of the abbreviations... Yeah. it's like A-Z is Arizona, A-K is Alaska, A-R is, Arizona, is Arkansas.
1: There you go. <laughs> After laugh graham he went with Harmon and Ising on a proposed Arabian Nights series of cartoons. Now, this is not the same one that Warner Brothers, I mean, that Hannah Hanna-Barbera Bar- did. Yeah, Hanna-Barbera had success on TV. Now, this series never, never was sold. It never came out. Never this did is that away. failed
2: business that Harmon and Ising tried to get going yeah. with, with CarMax Maxwell. I wonder what that idea was. I wonder if they were going to try to directly translate the the books and make the
1: things. I wonder. But it never happened. Never happened. We'll never know. But he did work at Warner Brothers with Harmon and Ising at the beginning of the Warner Brothers animation. He was the voice of Bosco. Remember the one I did earlier? Seen Bosco, you can find him once in a while. I actually have a few of them, but he was that voice. Basically, well, let's just be honest, it was a rip off of Mickey Mouse. That's what <laughs> it was. And if you're ever a fan of Seinfeld, you know, Bosco, the, the, the little chocolate syrup that I'm from what I understand was named after this uh, little monkey guy, and that's that's what Bosco was. Mm. From what I understand, is what I read before. Of course, you would find a Seinfeld connection, wouldn't you? Oh, you have to, <laughs> anyway. That being said, he went uh, with Harmonizing to MGM also. Uh, And after they were temporarily fired, he stayed at MGM as a production manager until 1953. And unfortunately, he died on September 27th in 1987. Now we get to do some fun. This lady is not really an animator. She's had a different role with Laugh and
2: Virginia Davis. Some of you Disney fans might know her name. Maybe, maybe not. She was born December 31st, 1918. She was a Kansas native. She met Walt. Uh, The summer of 1924, she was hired to play Alice in what's called Alice's Wonderland at laugh And this is now, it is kind of copyright free. This was sort of a test thing that Walt was doing. He had this idea of putting a live action person in a cartoon world. And if you get to see some of these clips, these are kind of adorable. At one point you see him with little Alice Davis, and he's got this little thing, and they're watching animation of like a doghouse or something. But then she goes into the cartoon. Well, this is the cartoon that Margaret Winkler sees in New York and says, Hey, this has potential. And so when Walt's lost everything and he goes to California to go, you know, with a suitcase in a dream, as they say in Disney's California Adventure, this is the contract he gets to create Alice comedies from Margaret Winkler, which unfortunately also introduces him to Charles Mintz, and we've, we've mentioned that earlier. So suddenly, Virginia Davis has a job. Walt contacts Virginia and her mother and says, can y'all move over here to California? We're going to make some more. Yes, James, we see you. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the Seinfeld reference, James. Anyways, okay. okay. So she starts working in California to make Alice comedies, also known at the time as Alice in Cartoonland. So in 1925, she retires from being Alice, and her final film was Alice in the Jungle. She's only age seven, and she's retired. <laughs> but then, she's not done acting. She played the role of Rezzy in The Greater Story in 1925, and this was the first National Pictures production. I don't know what ever happened to national productions. I think we can get in 15 minutes, we just gotta keep moving. Alrighty, so. She signs a deal then with Harry Carey, and they worked together in The Man from Red Gulch in 1925. She's still just seven years old. 1929, she's cast in The Bluebird, which is a production that actually featured 150 children. That's a she's lot. She's age 11. And they tell you never work with kids. I, that's kids working with kids. <laughs> 1934, she was a, actually she's 16 years old now, and she's performing as a dancer, and was actually uncredited in a 1936 film, College Holiday. And then, this is cool. Because Walt must just love that little girl. So, oh, she's all grown up. So she voice tests now for roles in Snow White and Pinocchio, but wasn't hired. I don't know who she was supposed to be in Snow White. I have heard in Pinocchio she was maybe going to be one of the little boys that gets turned into a donkey. So, but she also became the first woman named a Disney legend. Uh, now, sources were saying it was in 1988 that she's actually named a Disney legend, but the Disney legend's website listed her in 1998. Now, I don't know if that's maybe when they started officially doing a ceremony D23. I don't know why that discrepancy exists. I couldn't find anything. She did have her pass away August 15, 2009 in Cruella, California, and your father got to meet her yes, before he passed. He sure did. So That was great for him. He was so thrilled to meet her. But we we got to tackle Ub Iwerks in 15
1: Y'all sure have heard of Ub Iworks. Greatest animator. Greatest animator and dear friends with Walt Disney. Yep. He was born March 24th, 1901, right here in Kansas City. And with the capital K, that rhymes with. No, I'm just kidding. Keep going. <laughs> Kansas City, Missouri. And how he met Walt was at age 18 at Pesman Rubin Commercial Art Studio in 1919, where he get to meet Walt. They failed to start a business together uh, in 1920. They tried, of course, and it yeah. did fail, as we said. They well, went that's before laugh o Before laugh o yeah. So as you can see, not everything They tried, out. they failed, so the mills went to work together at, at a different company. That's right, and uh, at the ad company. Kansas jo- City Film Ad Company, which is actually probably where he met the Harmons and Isaac. Most likely. He joined Walt uh, in the founding laugh o in 1922 as chief animator, and that also failed, as we said before. Yeah. But after laugh he went with Walt in 1923 and was the animator behind the Alice Comedies. Walt was requested by Charles Mintz, as we said before, the husband of Margaret Winkler, who made a deal to release Alice Comedies to create a new character. Walt pitched the idea of the rabbit named Oswald, in which that Ub designed and animated Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. The deal was made for seven shorts. Universals started releasing the Oswald in 1927. They weren't happy with the first short uh, or Oswald's design. So Oswald was streamlined a bit, and Walt gave Oswald more personality, something that he was a firm believer in, personality-driven stories in animation.
2: Yeah, apparently animation before that time, you would just have a character and maybe have a funny situation, but Walt says these characters need to have personality so you remember the character later. So you could relate with them, too. Right. Something we could do and understand with. Which is probably why Oswald was so popular at the time. Yeah.
1: He was different. In 1928, Universal and Charles Mintz wooed away most of Walt's animators and took the character away. Iwerks, however, stayed... Because I like Walt, believed in a uh, personal relationship with people and believed in loyalty. Right. I once began drawing up ideas for a new character: frogs, dogs, cats, and etc. These ideas later would become Clarabelle the cow and Horace, Horse Collar. I'm sure most of y'all know those characters. Mm-hmm. I gotta admit, Horace is one of my all-time favorites. Doesn't get used like he ought to, in my opinion. Yeah.
2: Well he came back and get a
1: horse. He did. Yeah. He did, and I happen to love that. And how could you not? Get right. a horse, you got to have horse. You gotta have horse. <laughs> In 1925 you have Hugh Harmon who had sketched
2: mice on a, a photo of Walt Disney. Yeah, there's a little bit of backstory on that. So when Walt has Laugh-A-Gram Studio here on 31st Street, they had field mice always getting into the building. Walt would keep one in his drawer and he taught it to, to follow his pencil around. So he played with this little mouse. So Hugh Harmon was just kind of being cute and had drawn a mouse on the picture of Walt. And when Walt's coming back on a train after he gets Oswald taken away, he says, I need a new character. And he, you know, he sent telegram apparently to iWorks, His IWorks is working away all these, you know, cats and frogs and everything. And Walt's thinking, a mouse. I need a mouse. So he sketches out something. And he's, he's going to go and give that to Ub. So here, I've got a mouse thing. Do something. To finalize this. So he did. And Walt
1: came to Ub, uh, who cleaned up and uh, refined the design. And I think you've all seen it. You all probably have seen that uh, design of, of Mickey. Yeah. We all know it. his name wasn't originally Mickey. Y'all know it was going to be Mortimer. It. Thank be Mortimer. God Lillian said that's a terrible name. Yeah, but but that being said, later on that name was used. Yeah. have you ever but, seen that episode? His yeah, rival, I love that cartoon. That's one he of my favorites. In fact, Mortimer still gets used occasionally today. Yeah, they use Mortimer. Yep, he's got the long nose, has a little he mustache, looks like a rat. Yeah, he does look a little more like a rat, and kind of is in personality wise. He's a jerk. He is. A creep. I love that cartoon. Yeah, I even like Mortimer yeah, villain wise. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, okay, so. Where am I here? Well, I'll I'll pick up a little bit here. Go ahead, brother. So
2: the the fun thing is, uh, he's still, Walt's still got a contract. He's got to make a total of seven Oswald shorts. So he's still got his animators working on Oswald. So of works by day, sitting there, yep, I'm drawing Oswald. Let me put that on the stack of Mickey Mouse things on there. Because at night, uh, Bioworks is sitting there drawing Plane Crazy, the very first Mickey Mouse cartoon, although they never released. Well, it was released later when they had it out. But he was drawing it as a silent cartoon. Plane Crazy is, is it's funny. It's it's, it's, it's it's a lot of fun. Mickey Mouse building it. It's the most ridiculous building of an airplane you've ever seen. It's a lot of fun. But So he's drawing that at night and then hiding Mickey Mouse drawings underneath Oswald drawings. Because they're keeping that as secret as they can. They don't want anybody who – because they don't know who's loyal to, to Walt and who's – being loyal to Charles because Charles is wooing away those artists. It's like we don't want Charles Mintz to know that we're about to kick his butt with a mouse because Charles Mintz couldn't get Oswald rolling, It was missing Walt's personality and I've never seen any of I've seen some of the early Oswald ones. If you ever had the epic Mickey game that put some Oswald cartoons on there? They're hilarious but when Universal was making Oswald they couldn't get it going which is why everybody forgot about Oswald because he was a not successful character anymore. And Walt suddenly comes out, he's got this Mickey Mouse. He couldn't get plain crazy to sell. Him. After, uh, Ove actually finished 600, 700 drawings and completed the work in just mere weeks. I works animated that entire cartoon himself. And he did that the Skeleton Dance, Steamboat Willie, I works animated those himself. This is why I called him the greatest animator ever. Prove me wrong. <laughs> so, Oh yeah, we're moving I, I guess I just means I that I can hop along. So of course you realize they didn't have success with Mickey until Walt thinks sound. Mm-hmm. So Steamboat Willie is the first one that actually finally gets released. And so we consider his birthday and anniversary to be Steamboat Willie. But after realizing, hey, we add some sound to this thing, they went back to playing crazy. And another one that I worked and animated, they added some sound to music and then released those, uh, which I think you can find some of those on YouTube. But now, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're like best buddies. But all of a sudden, your best friend, you start nagging and annoying them. Because Walt was known as a bit of a harsh taskmaster. Uh, And uh, so Ub had a little bit of a falling out with him. And just to really irritate Walt, there's this guy, Pat Powers. And he has developed the Powers Cinephone sound-on system, in which Powers actually had copied from another guy in the DeForest Phonofilm. Pat Powers said Walt had used his stuff to put sound to cartoons, and he had already had a falling out then with Walt, because I think he had been working with this guy, but they already had a falling out, so uh works after he has a falling out with Walt goes to work with Pat Powers, who promises Ub iWorks his own studio under his own name. And Ub iWorks probably could have made that work. And he did get a few things going. Uh, so iWorks actually created a multiplane camera out of car parts from a junkyard. Now iWorks loved, of course, working on cars. So when he returns to the studios, he actually does use his experience to improve what Disney had as a multi-plane camera. Now how many of you are familiar with the multi-plane camera? Right, a few of you. Okay, so go back and watch, I think some of the my one of my favorites is in Bambi. The opening shots of Bambi, you're moving the through a forest effect. and everything moves at different speeds. So it gives it that 3D effect. That's a multi-plane camera. If you imagine a big box from floor to ceiling, the camera's up here on the ceiling and you're moving all each, all, there's like different glass levels and you're moving pieces of the background at different speeds across so you take a shot so it makes everything seem to move in different ways so your background is not one picture but multiple pictures you see a beautiful example of this in the beginning of Pinocchio when you scan out over the town and the village and then suddenly the camera is able to move in and go down into the town it's a beautiful shot and we take it so much for granted now but when you realize wait a minute these were multiple drawings that are suddenly now interacting with each other it's impressive there's so much we can do on computer these days but there's just there's that art is gone of being able to do this so Disney first had a multi camera. Ub Iwerks has, some, has his developments, and when he comes back to Disney, because he did come back, he improves it. So MGM actually made a contract with Ub Iwerks to make Flip the Frog and Willy Whopper cartoons, but he actually never had the success that Disney did. So 1937, Leon Schlesinger, Mr. Warner Brothers, uh, he contracts Iwerks to produce four Looney Tunes, which starred Porky Pig and Gabby Goat. Anybody remember Gabby Goat? Some of you do. I've actually seen Gabby Goat cartoons where I saw it again later, and Daffy Duck was in the place of Gabby Goat. Same script, but it was Daffy Duck. Gabby Goat, for whatever reason, did not catch on. But Daffy Duck did. So he actually did a, a little bit of contract work over at Spring Gems, which was part of, uh, not Universal, but uh, i got five minutes. So in 1940, he returned to the Disney Studios, and he's one of the few that came back and was welcomed. So I have a feeling him and Walt... Their friendship was strong enough, you know, that they got over it. Then, this is awesome, so um, I Iwerks worked, worked on some of the effects mixing some live action and animated characters for the 1946 Song of the South. Now, if you remember, he worked on those Alice comedies where you put a live little girl in the cartoon, makes perfect sense. Song of the South, animation with live action actors. He was the pro. Then he starts working at Wed Enterprises, which is now known as Walt Disney Imagineering, and actually helped create some Disneyland attractions. He animated a deep sea illuminated fish for the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction, which unfortunately is now not there. That's an Nemo attraction in Disneyland. He got an Oscar for Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds in 1963. He starts doing effects animation. He died on July 7, 1971. Now this is what's going get cool now. The Annie Awards, I don't know, if don't have time to explain them. The Annie Awards are like animation awards. Though. Uh, but They created an award in his honor called the Ub Iwerks Award for Technical Achievement. His sons ended up working for Disney and the camera department. And in 1989, he was named a Disney legend. And he actually had told his sons, it doesn't make any difference who first drew Mickey Mouse. What made the difference was what Walt did to the character. Because a lot of people, they want to be able to fuss like, Oh, fireworks never gets credit for Mickey Mouse. Well, Oh, works does get some credit, but not everybody knows about Oh, Because you have to sometimes do a deep dive and show up with one of these things. Uh, but Oh, fireworks was like, you know, I don't care if I got credit that I f- finished up the design. It was Walt's idea. And Mickey Mouse had Walt's personality. And, and voice. his voice. And his voice at first. Yeah. But sh- Gives enough time we for have the very four last... minutes. The very last. There's some weird dude called Walt Disney. I never heard of him. He's so obscure. <laughs> He's born December 5th, 1901. But he worked at Laughergram. He met Walt Disney. Met Walt Disney under a dreaming tree in Marshalline, Missouri. Oh, I've heard of that place. Yeah, that's where he starts dreaming up ideas. He tells stories to his sister, little Ruth, who said that Walt was the greatest storyteller that she ever met. Wonderful. But he he would imagine and he would draw the animals he would see. He even drew on the side of the house in tar. They actually happened. If you ever get a chance to see a museum, Marceline, they've recreated that. It's really fun. Wonderful. But you know what? After Laughlin failed, he went to California with a suitcase and a dream. Moved into his uncle's house. Persuaded his brother Roy to get out of a sick bed to join him. Roy Disney had tuberculosis. Was lying in a bed, wasting away. Walt shows up and says, I, I've got a contract to do these Alice comedies, but I, I don't have the sense to run the finances. Roy, you got to get yeah. up. So he got Roy up out of bed, and Roy actually started recovering when he had purpose with his brother. Roy Disney is an um hero to the Disney company. Yeah. And I love it. Walt Disney World, there's a little bench. You can sit next to, to a Roy Disney statue, and you take a picture with it. I've got a photo. Roy I, think of, house. It's a, I, know, I guess with my buddy Josh, I got a picture with Roy Disney. But I love the picture But Roy Disney is the hero of Disney None of, one of, Walt was a creative guy But he didn't have enough business sense Roy knew how to get it going Although Roy frequently would like to tell Walt No we don't have the money for that Which is actually why Walt would start other companies Like Wet Enterprises is now in Imagineering Was something Walt created when he, he went to Roy And said I'm going to build a theme park Roy said, what's the theme park? No. Walt said, I'm going to do it. Uh, So a lot of things. Walt bankrupted himself quite a few times. That's right. But that stuff usually he did on his own. He he turned it into successes later. Uh, He, of course, started a Disney Brothers company in his uncle's garage. Summoned Virginia Davis from Kansas to come and be the star of Alice Comedies. And from there, made history. Uh, I don't know if anybody's got any questions because i got two minutes. Fire it up. Me, all of these artists got their start at Lap-O-Gram. Yes, all at Lapogram. I loved doing this research. I had kind of the idea in the back of my head. Well, I'm going to do a Comic Con this year. I'm like, all these other artists that worked at LaFarge. What did they do? And then I started looking through. I was like, we wouldn't have Looney Tunes if not for perhaps the influence of Walt Disney on harmonizing and Chris frailing I don't know how much influence they had because they didn't get along, but. I, I've told, I, I do a lot of driving for Lyft and Uber, and they'll say, well, tell me something about kids City nobody knows. I said, Walt Disney got his start here at LaFranche Studio. It failed. And if it had not failed, who knows? We might be the hub of animation. I mean, because these guys work with them. This is, this is the animation we all came to know when we were kids. All the, all the big pioneers were from here. It's amazing. Which, by the way... I don't need these notes. So if any of y'all wants to like be able to keep track of all these things, I will gladly give you some notes. I saw a hand That would be you one the notes. Okay. I will even sign them for you because I am that much of an egomaniac that I'm like, I'm Internet famous. <laughs> so uh, we'll even sign them up for you. But uh, if y'all want to be able to follow up on this, uh, NeverlandPodcast.com is where the website where I post. The, uh, the, the shows are there. Of course, we're on Apple Podcasts under Neverland to Disney. And this week of course we're going to have this audio Because I've been recording it right here And also a review of Dumbo Because grown men will cry I did I promise you what? The first half hour, once you get past the first hour you know, the first half hour when he starts to take flight I'm just like, go Dumbo And you act like you didn't know what was going to happen But uh, it's Wow, it's good It's got some flaws I'll get into when I do a full review that I record later But no, the first hour kind of retells the movie And then moves on to a brand new story When Michael Keaton shows up but uh, that's all the time we have. And so remember to keep that pixie in your pocket. Spread a little bit of that dust around If you see somebody smiling and they're not smiling today, smile at them. Shake their hand. Be careful of putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, hey, how you doing? Because some people are like offended by that now. So it's hard to spread pixie dust. But sometimes you just got to smile and say, hey, it's good to see you. God, God that's pixie dust. Little things. That's our philosophy. And that's, that's our show. God bless. I feel like Portia Pig needs to come out. Breathe, 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 That's all. Well, thank you so much for coming. I love it when I have room to talk to. You. Oh!
1: There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do, and stuff like you would never see.
4: Hey, a movie, yeah, yeah we're gonna, gonna be, be a movie, starring everybody and me.
2: Boy, I wish I were you. People seeing this for the first time. Herman, I got a great picture of the chicken. Oh, good. All right, before we get into uh, some more details of my review of the live version of Tim Burton's Disney Dumbo, I have some fun facts that are part of the press kit uh, that I have here for Dumbo. And it says the basic story of Dumbo. We're talking about the animated film. The basic story actually dates back to 1939 as a planned novelty called a roll book which is a book with little knobs that readers turn to read the story through a window. And the authors were Helen Aberson and Harold Pearl, and they wrote the story Dumbo the Flying Elephant. Now, whether a roll book was ever produced is a mystery because none of them have been located. But when Walt Disney purchased the rights to the story, he published 1,430 copies of a regular book version of the story. Dumbo was one of the first feature films finished at Disney's new Burbank studio lot, which opened in 1940. It was built thanks to profits from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now, Dumbo was originally slated as a 30-minute short film, and it ultimately expanded to just under 64 minutes, Disney's second-shortest animated feature film behind 1942's Saludos Amigos, which was just 42 minutes. In the original animated film, Dumbo, who won the hearts of viewers around the world, doesn't speak. Though Mrs. Jumbo, Timothy Mouse, and many other animals do. In Tim Burton's reimagining of the story, none of the animals speak. Although Mrs. Jumbo, I think, only has like one line in the film. Doesn't she just call him Jumbo Jr.? She just gives him a name? I don't recall that she says anything else after that. It's some of the other elephants that are all gossips and everything. Now, as far as the live action goes, some more fun facts. Director Tim Burton studied animation at CalArts alongside a host of future Disney filmmakers, including Chris Buck from Frozen, John Musker, Moana, all kinds of stuff. John Musker, wow, he's got a lot of stuff. Just look him up. Uh, Mike Giamo also worked on Frozen, Glenn Keane worked on Tangled, and Rich Moore, Ralph Breaks the Internet... Burton worked at Disney Animation in the early 1980s and directed two shorts for the studio, Vincent, and the live-action short, Frankenweenie, and later wrote and produced the 1993 stop-motion cult phenomenon, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Burton's 2010 reimagining of Alice in Wonderland won Oscars for Best Achievement in Costume Design, Colleen Atwood, and Best Achievement in Art Direction, Robert Stromberg, the production designer, and Karen O'Hara, the set decorator. The live-action reimagining of Dumbo utilizes state-of-the-art visual effects to portray Dumbo and many of his four-legged counterparts. Yeah, it seemed to be most of the time it was computer animated. You could kind of tell, but they still looked really good. Utilizing the design of the train in the animated film Dumbo, filmmakers behind the live-action reimagining constructed a full-scale Casey Jr. train for the film. However, since the Medici Brothers Circus is far from new and shiny, the train had to be aged with chipped paint and wear and tear to aptly reflect the state of the circus. And I was totally hooked by the time I I first saw Casey Jr. Because it has his face on the front of it and everything. Oh my gosh, it it tapped right into my nostalgia. I really appreciated the details they put into creating Casey Jr. And even Danny Elfman's score, he kind of hints at the Casey Jr. song a little bit. It was really neat. Director Tim Burton and his production team wanted to honor the minimal and expressionistic look of the original animated film, and to bring the look into the live-action realm, they studied film noir and developed a stripped-down environments and lighting strategies, ultimately striking a balance between reality and expressionism. Dumbo was shot just outside of London on sound stages at Pinewood Studios East, becoming the second film to shoot in the new section of the famous film lot. Now, the production team built as much of the Medici circuit Brothers Circus and Dreamland as possible to ground the story in the environment. Colin Farrell is no stranger to horses, having appeared in several films that required extensive horse riding, Alexander, Winter Sale, among others. But when the Dumbo script described his character as a former circus star with a popular equestrian act, Farrell trained with a lasso and a horse riding instructor. And I'm starting to enjoy Colin Farrell more and more every time I see him in a film, I must say... Uh, he's, I don't know. He's just getting more and more entertaining. He's become really good at being a, kind of an everyman and yet father figure for both this film and for saving Mr. Banks. I'm really enjoying Colin Farrell. Now, the props department armed Millie with books by physicist Marie Curie to showcase the character's passion for science. Nico Parker, who portrays Millie, I'm stumbling over my words, uh, spent some time studying the books to better understand her character, but says she doesn't share Millie's scientific leanings. Yeah, they, they basically I think they're trying to help encourage you know young women into science by creating characters like this, and so they made it a bit of a plot with Millie that she was very interested in science and had become interested while her father, played by Colin Farrell, Holt is his name, had been off fighting World War One and comes back missing an arm, and so he's supposed to be oh well you can't really do your your circus act anymore riding horses and his wife had passed away while he was away from illness, uh, the flu they kind of mentioned so uh, you do have some nice family quality. Uh, and a storyline going on with with him and his two children. Now, actor Roshan Seth, who portrays Snake Charmer Premesh Singh, comfortably carried a live python around his neck in most scenes that featured him. Yes, and there are some funny scenes with the python. I think there's some stuff they did use computer or maybe some puppetry, perhaps. Uh, to have the snake do certain behaviors but and I knew I'd seen this guy before he, he I think he was in uh, Indiana Jones in the temple of doom looking at his face but uh, I'm not entirely certain about that but I think he played uh, one of the villain characters uh, that you that first greets Indiana Jones and company at the uh, the town there. Wow, and it's gone out of my head. I can't think of the name of it. And everybody's probably yelling at their their phone right now saying, no, it was this one. But I'm pretty sure that's him. Uh, I should have looked that up beforehand, but I mean, I was sitting there going like, wow, that guy looks so familiar. Was he in Indiana Jones? And I think that's who it is. But anyways, uh, the tank that houses Miss Atlantis was constructed with double walls. A narrow internal tank that lined the bigger tank was filled with water and fish to create the illusion that she was underwater, which I think is how that freak show type of thing was supposed to work. She was supposed to be a mermaid. And uh, she's kind of a a larger lady, and she was such a great character. And in fact, in order to get Baby Mine to work as a scene because they wanted to recreate the baby mine scene and you know they didn't want to have this film be kind of a musical where there was nobody there you could tell who's singing the song because in the animated film the song is just there but they had it uh, and, st- and I know there's a term for this, and I'm forgetting the term for it, but they had it, you know, in the environment. The song is being performed. She's singing Baby Mine as do Bo comes out to his mother, who's been locked away in a trailer that says Mad Elephant. And uh, bring your tissues. They did such a great job of recreating that scene that if, uh, if this scene has had an emotional impact on you in the animated one, this version will also create an emotional impact, even though it's still technically animated by computer. But uh, it was Fantastic. Now, Mrs. Lana's costume consisted of more of 100 overlapping scales, which were hand stitched. They're alternating rows of black and turquoise. The scales were constructed from three to four layers of fabric with sequin borders to give each scale a reflective quality. And it was really neat looking. It did have that vintage uh, early 1900s look. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of like this nice mermaid costume. It was really cool. Now, in the film, Ivan the Wonderful and Catherine the Greater are a husband and wife team of illusionists who care for Millie and Joe after their mother passes and before their father returns from the war. Real-life couple Miguel Minuez and Zenaida Alcad, I'm probably getting her name wrong, they portray the duo. The Spanish performers specialize in physical theater, trapeze, and magic. And they, I think they did some actual sleight of hand stuff that they had uh, in the film. I mean, they could have used effect certainly, but it was some really neat stuff. They were uh, they were minor characters, but they were enjoyable. Now, filmmakers felt strongly about featuring real circus performers to infuse a sense of authenticity to their circus. Fourth-generation circus performer Christian Kristof from Hungary was hired to share not only his extensive, extensive knowledge of the circus, but his international circus connections. The result was a multicultural array of performers, including jugglers, clowns, knife throwers, contortionists, a dog trainer, and more. And it was neat. I mean, there there's a lot of good circus... You know, acrobatics and all kinds of stuff in this film. It was really cool. Uh, the circus troupe assembled, assembled for the film hailed from all over the world. The significant language barriers made it difficult for the performers to connect. And that is until they set up a ping pong table. <laughs> Now, Eva Green portrays aerialist Colette Marchand, but the actress joined the production with a serious fear of heights. A professional aerialist was hired to double for Green as needed and worked with the actress to build her confidence in the air. In the end, Green conquered much of her fear and was able to perform a lot of the choreography. And you can tell watching the film when it wasn't her because the uh, who was filling in for her would be looking away from the camera, looking down, uh, so you wouldn't see her face. Now, to play the role of aerialist Colette Marchand, Ever had to exude not only the physique, but the fluidity such a performer would embody. Personal trainer and aerialist Francesca Jane was tapped to work with Green. One of the strategies employed to build strength and elegance was ballet. And Everett Green really does have this very elegant maneuver and especially when she's supposed to be performing at, the, at, at her role in the circus. The way she would gesture was... It, it was big, but it wasn't like... Over the top, big circus thing. You know, it seemed very natural, and very elegant. It, she did a great job uh, in the film. Millie and Joe, these are the two kids, have a little mouse circus, which is a nod to Timothy Q. Mouse in the animated movie. And in fact, we did mention in the trailers a little white mouse that has kind of the uh, the band leader uniform, which they don't call him Timothy, but that's Timothy. Now, since Dumbo, Mrs. Jumbo, and the other elephants in the film are added in post-production by visual effects department, the production team had to build on-set standards for fellow performers to act opposite. And lifelike replications were created in some cases to assist in lighting certain scenes, and in other cases, crew members dressed in green, making them easy to remove in post, and carried elephant-sized frames to demonstrate where the elephants would ultimately ultimately be placed. Green stuffies and elephant suits were also created to help establish eye lines. Sharon Rooney, who plays Miss Atlantis, was tapped to sing the iconic song Baby Mine in the film. The song holds a special place in Rooney's heart. Her grandmother used to sing it to over her when she was a child. Rooney also had to play the ukulele for the scene, and she'd never picked up the instrument before. And it took her just a week to learn to play the song. And Sharon Rooney, if you ever hear this, you did great. For Dreamland's parade sequence, costume designer Colleen Atwood's team created more than 200 costumes for the performers, plus an additional 500 for the crowd characters. The team behind the elephant's animation pushed available technology to the next level, adding sliding skin, flexing muscles, and jiggling fat to give the animals a sense of mass. And yes, these elephants were very believable when you looked at them. The effects were really good. Because, you know, we've all seen an elephant before. And so creating one in a computer, I mean, we can tell it's created in a computer, but it looked very real, very believable. And you mainly just reacted to them as characters, even Dumbo. Because Dumbo has, of course, these big blue eyes, which are not very much elephant eyes. Uh, He's got character eyes. Now, I mentioned in the, the panel you heard that I really did enjoy this movie, but I have a couple of things to criticize, um, to, but, but to basically lay down the film, like the first half of the film is pretty much recreating in its own way the original film. And then it picks up and shifts gears to a new story when Michael Keaton shows up as his character, which I'm not sure what they were doing with his character because he he at times he quotes Walt Disney on it's you know the impossible is possible and stuff like that. He's he seems like a decent fellow, but you, there's something weaselly about him, and he's kind of a little over the top. He's a little bit P.T. Barnum mixed with Walt Disney. And when you when we mentioned Dreamland here, I was going over these notes. Dreamland is almost like he's built his own Disneyland. And he's got a banker that he is beholden to, played by Alan Arkin, which it's always fun to see him pop up. Uh, I, I, well, I can't think of any other Disney films he's done off the top of my head, other than The Rocketeer. He has a great role in The Rocketeer. But Alan Arkin plays a banker that is basically funding Dreamland and this big standing circus, which kind of reminds me of Cirque du Soleil, the way it was set up, because his circus is stationary. It doesn't travel, it, it has a location of where it's at, and it's inside of basically a theme park. So him being kind of villainous, it almost felt like this movie was taking jabs at Walt Disney. Now, maybe they weren't thinking of it that way. Maybe they weren't paying attention to what they did. But it's like, wow, you established a character who's kind of like P.T. Barnum, but you have him quote Walt Disney a few times. And then you take you know him as the bad guy and you have him kind of a jerk. I'm like, wow, that's... You realize you almost kind of insulted <laughs> the guy that started this company that made this film. So that's, I, I think that's a bit of a mistake. They should not have made him quote Walt Disney or even have a park and even have a section that was like the Carousel of Progress that was sort of a, a plot point for Millie, who is very interested in science, and uh, she has a good scene with her father of you know all the things she's amazed with the science, and she's got a little bit of Walt's fascination of what the future may hold because of things, you know, technology is you know, progressing and stuff like that. So that might have been a misstep. And also I did see the effects of a film where, you know, there are people who consider the crows to be racist characters. And there's also a a large group of animal activists that they don't... You know, elephants in the modern world have been removed from circuses. So there's no way they could really create the happy ending of, yay, Dumbo gets his mother back, she's got her own special car and they're traveling the circus and they're famous. They couldn't do that ending because those animal activist people would probably have been upset with that ending. So they do a different ending, which doesn't make sense. Now, I don't want to spoil things. So I've got to be careful about this. But they do establish at one point... And this happens in actual Animal animal Kingdom. I have seen even at San Diego Zoo uh, of a, a waterbuck that was born albino. And the other waterbucks were a little afraid to be around it. They were like, oh no, this there's something different about this. And they have a moment, and they kind of are replicating the three female gossiping elephants with one scene where they see Dumbo's ears, and they're like, oh, that's a freak thing. Oh, destroy it. Um, so I'm just going to throw this question out there. Would you take this... this baby elephant with large ears, who you know, a, re- a herd mentality is going to take over and they're going to be like, oh, there's something wrong with your baby. Why would you bring that out to a bunch of other elephants in the wild? That doesn't make sense. Also, simply putting two elephants on a boat does not make them get to the jungles of India. So, I have a problem with the ending. It doesn't make sense, but then again, a flying elephant doesn't make sense either. So, I have problems with a, kind of a, a, a weird turn that it takes, uh, which it was, it felt like an appeasement ending, and it was a nice ending. It's nice to have Dumbo's reunited with his mother, which if that, that shouldn't be a spoiler, because unless you've never seen the original Dumbo, you're gonna know that it's all gonna work out good and Dumbo be reunited with his mother, that kind of thing. But the way they did it, it was like, I, I felt like it was like, oh, yay, but uh, okay. You know, I understood why they went with the ending they did, but it didn't completely chime it, it seems like a weird left turn for, from the rest of the film because a lot of the rest of the film is, it's Dumbo like he's he's partially has to kind of prove himself his own value and then he's doing stuff trying to he just wants his mother freed and wants to be reunited with his mother and so he does get that it's just kind of a weird way that they did it I think uh, and I think I know the reasons behind it but still a very enjoyable film I really liked it so far I think this may be uh, probably my favorite of the remakes that Disney has put out. I really enjoyed it. I I got very emotionally involved with it. So, oh my gosh, bring tissues. Even if you're a 40-year-old man, bring tissues. Because if you have any fondness for this original film or love the character of Dumbo, they go right for the heartstrings. Tim Burton has done a wonderful job. I really enjoyed the cast. This was a very good film, and I highly recommend it. But now, it's time we wrap this up. So I'm going to say goodbye for now, and we'll see you next week. And for those of you who are new to the show, thanks for downloading. Uh, make sure you visit NeverlandPodcast.com. hit click the Neverlanders, you can choose yourself a nickname and become an official pixie or lost boy because, you know, girls don't get lost. They're too clever. Also, we do have a Patreon page that you can go and support. I do appreciate it. You can do as little as a dollar or up to $5. I don't ask any more than that. That really does help me out. Also, we do have a Facebook page you can come and follow. There's a Facebook group you can join. Uh, I try to post more into the, the regular page than I do in the group. I need to put more stuff into the group. We also have a Twitter, at NeverlandPCast, which I think that's also where the Instagram is. We are having some fun on Twitter as well. So come and follow us everywhere and interact. There's a YouTube channel. I try to post up some videos, every once in a while. We're having a good time. Uh, And I'm going to have probably some video of what I've done here at Planet Comic Con Uh, at some point, but right now I think I want to release the video of the panel a little early to the Patreon supporters, and then eventually we'll probably put that up on YouTube, but I want to share that with the Patreon support first. But anyways, come back next week, and we're going to have even more fun, and I'm probably going to share more stuff from Planet Comic Con, or possibly uh, depending upon um, when he contacts me, I got to meet a guy who designed the costumes and the look for most of the human characters in the Star Wars prequels. I stumbled into this panel. I wasn't familiar with this guy, and I learned so much, and I gave him my card and invited him to come to the show, so I'm hoping he contacts me because I would love to talk to him and for you to hear all the neat things that he has done. It it was a great panel. I really enjoyed it. But that's okay. Finally, final word, I am going to wrap this up, and I'm going to see you next week. Thanks for downloading and listening.
4: Bye-bye.